Now I have the honor of introducing Tracy Bushner. Tracy's a founding member of Gutman, Bushner, and Brooks in DC. And um, there she's, uh, she is a, she represents plaintiffs in um, complex litigation ranging from class actions to government contract fraud under FCA. She's handled some of the largest successful FCA actions, including a $280 million settlement. So for those of you who are in our legislative advocacy asking, how can you do good work while doing well for yourself? <laughs> you may want to talk to Tracy. <laughs> um, Tra we're really honored to have Tracy here today. Um, Tracy and the firm are great friends of ACS. And so without further ado, I'll hand it off to Tracy. who will introduce our keynote speaker, Tracy. Thank you, Megan, um, and thank you um, for inviting me to speak here today. It's a great honor, and it's an even bigger honor to, to um, introduce Dahlia Lithwick, um, who is, you all probably know pretty well, who is, uh, was nominated and uh, won the award for a progressive, uh, by a ACS Progressive Champion Award in uh, last year in 2018. I was able uh, to see Dahlia speak at the ACS National Convention and she was just great. She's very smart and witty and funny and so I think you guys are in for a real treat today. So I'm gonna keep my remarks very short because she's the main event. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about my firm. Um, we do support ACS. Um, we're a very proud sponsor. Uh, my partner has been on the board for several years now, and every event I come to is great. The speakers are great, um, and now I'm getting to know a little more about the ACS chapters that are in the law schools. And I was able last night to speak to several of you and you all have such great enthusiasm and desire to do good. And, and really what I wanna do is encourage you to keep doing those things, keep going to ACS, keep talking to people, keep, keep up the networking and that sort of thing. Even after you graduate, there's plenty of opportunities in ACS um, to do good work, to network, to learn about what other people in the law are doing, see how that can impact what you're doing. Um, I was asked to talk a little bit about what I do, um, and I've been a plaintiff's lawyer my whole career. Uh, I graduated from law school in 1995, and I was a prosecutor for a short time, um, and, but since then, I've, I've really represented individuals uh, mostly in False Claims Act cases, environmental cases, um, employment and labor cases, and we also do work on behalf of, of um, investors, like corporate investors, um, union health and welfare benefit pension funds. And so really right now, I would say my main focus is under the False Claims Act. And so I don't know if many of you know about this statute. It's, it's much more well known than when I started working in the area. Uh, when I started working under the False Claims Act, nobody knew what it was. Uh, they didn't understand it. Judges didn't understand it. They didn't understand why you were filing cases under seal in their courts. Um, and so, um, but, but now it's sort of one of those areas of the law that's become sort of an attention grabber, especially in high dollar cases 
many of which are against very large corporations, including pharmaceutical uh, companies. And so I've been able to do some of those cases. I represent whistleblowers who know about fraud, um, illegal marketing uh, of drugs um, that cause basically fis fi uh, fiscal damage to the, to the Department of Treasury. And so what we do, which I'm very proud of, is that we return money um, to the federal government. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm for government, so um, <laughs> I think I'm in the right group here. I'm for government, and so to, to be able to return the money to the government is, is very important to me. It also shines light on when we were able to do discovery on, you know, abuses in the pharmaceutical um, uh, in the pharmaceutical corporations. Um, so not only uh, is the government on the short stick for paying for a lot of these drugs, but many people become injured by them. They take them off label. They don't, you know, they're not fully informed of what all the side effects are, and so they can be greatly damaged from a personal perspective as well. Um, so that's one path. I know one of the, one of the key things um, in this conference is talking about paths uh, for progressive action and change. And so one of the paths is the path that I've took, taken, which is to, you know, represent plaintiffs in lots of types of different cases. And so, um, and there's uh, many, many other paths as well. And, uh, and our, our keynote, Dahlia, has taken yet another path, which is through journalism, you know, to speak on uh, legal and political um, happenings and what's going on in the world and so that we understand what's going on. Um, she uses the power of the word, the power of the pen, I guess, or the power of the computer uh, pad um, to get her views out and to, to, allow, uh, to allow people to understand what's happening in our courts, in the legislatures, um, you know, in politics, and so that's a very important thing. Um, and when you read her work, what you'll realize is she employs things like metaphor and repetition and sort of, um, you know, imagery and those types of things to, to get the reader to understand what she's talking about and to actually, I think, to sort of lead uh, the reader or the, the listener to, to do some critical thinking about how they can impact change as well. So one of the things when I was at the national convention that I heard her say that I thought was really, really interesting is she said, you know, the American dream is not one individual's nightmare. And so, you know, that was pretty impactful. And, and the notion of the American dream, what is the American dream? And it sort of evokes back to what Martin Luther King was talking about in the I Have a Dream speech. And so for me, those types of words make me, you know, help me, spur me on, I think spur all of us on to do good things, to make change happen. And so I actually did a little research on the I Had a Dream speech, which is really fascinating. I don't know if you've heard this, but Martin Luther King actually typed out an entire speech. They spent all night writing and rewriting the speech before, um, before he was supposed to speak on that fateful day on the mall. And <laughs> he scrapped it halfway through. So because a gospel singer who had already been on the stage and performed said, tell them about the dream. And so he scrapped his notes and he told the dream 
he, he told stories that he had told from the pulpit, and he told story in smaller groups. He had never done such a large group before. So he spoke from the heart, and he told the story about the dream. And when he did, he used the Bible, he used metaphor, he used imagery, he used repetition, he used all those things. And the, actually, the speech, you know, is one of the most renowned speeches in the history of our planet, essentially. And it spurned on the 1964 Civil Rights Amendment. So with his words, he was able to inspire an entire group of people in the United States and all over the world. In fact, people were using the I have a dream sort of meme in, in, in their day-to-day their -day, um, you know, groups and all sorts of things, things that would happen now that would be called maybe a meme or something, a hashtag or whatever, hashtag I have a dream. So anyway, so long story short is we're not all Martin Luther King. We may not all get to speak on the mall one day, but we all do have have the power of the word either through the pen or through speech in a small courtroom, in a state somewhere representing someone who's been injured in a car accident or someone who can't, you know, afford to pay their bills. We all have the ability to use our words and to pick our words wisely. And so with that, I sort of want to introduce, well not sort of, but I want to introduce Dahlia, and I'll tell you a little more about her. She's a senior editor at Slate, where she writes about law and politics. Um, she's the recipient of many awards. I spoke about the ACS Progressive um, Champion Award, but she's also won the 2013 National Magazine Award for her columns on the Affordable Care Act, and the 2017 Golden Pen Award for the legal writing, from the Legal Writing Institute. Um, she was a two-time recipient of the Online Journalism Award for her legal commentary. Um, Dahlia is also uh, one of the first online journalists invited to be one of the reporters for the, com uh, reporters for the Committee for Freedom of the Press. Um, in addition to her powerful writing, Dahlia has testified before Congress about the justice in the area of the, of the Roberts Court. She has appeared on CNN, ABC, The Colbert Report, The Daily Show, and is a frequent guest on The Rachel Maddow Show. And I have actually seen her on The Rachel Maddow, so. Uh, and I think Rachel really likes her a lot. <laughs> Uh, Dahlia is a graduate, uh, graduate of Yale University and of Stanford Law School. Um, I think she was a, she told me she was a longtime resident of Charlottesville, uh, now living in New York. Um, so we are very thrilled to have Dahlia speak. She's a true progressive champion, and I think you're in for a real treat. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you, Tracy. That was that was incredibly nice and generous. Um, and it's uh, good to be back at UVA, and it's good to be uh, back with ACS. And I hope all of you are feeling uh, inspired and uh, energized and activated um, because this is a really extraordinary program. I want to thank ACS for including me, and I want to thank uh, UVA. I'm looking around and seeing like people who raised my children when they were little. Uh, so it's very good to be home. Um, 
I thought I would use my time today to talk to you about something that maybe sweeps in uh, a bunch of the different components that you all are learning about and thinking about this weekend. And it transcends you know, any one question about you know, the environment, uh, the right to choose, uh, uh, a whole bunch of the things that uh, you're thinking about. Um, and, and fundamentally, it has to do with the judicial branch. I, I know you have a bunch of judges who are going to talk to you today, but I, I can tell you things about the judiciary that they can't. Um, and so in some ways, um, I'm going to be like their Lorax uh, for the next 15 minutes and try to encourage you to be their Lorax uh, as well. And, and just as a, a precatory matter, I, I want to say that you all are in law school in just a deeply weird time. Uh, when I was in law school, truly uh, the biggest large-scale societal concern for law students was, you know, why are O'Connor and Ginsburg wearing those collars? Like, those are not attractive. Um, that's the kind of thing that I worried about when I graduated from law school in 1996. You're in a, a completely uh, different situation. And it goes without saying that at this moment when you're being initiated into this you know, centuries-long august conversation about the Constitution and the rule of law and how the Supreme Court is this sacred and immutable oracular entity, you're also out of the side of your eyes watching the Kavanaugh hearings, you know, listening to the president malign uh, judges the entire Ninth Circuit, uh, watching people uh, go through confirmation hearings who actually have never stepped in a courtroom. And I think it must be just very destabilizing in a way that I just want to honor uh, because it's, it's not how I experienced law school. And I think through the history of this country, it's not how most people have really experienced law school. And there is this tremendous dissonance between the stature of this enterprise that you are being taught and the way it is being portrayed uh, day after day by Roger Stone and the tweeter machine that he employs. And I just want to tell you uh, that we see you, and we hear you, and we know that law school is a challenge, that there is a huge cognitive dissonance about tethering yourself to this project with the gravitas and the sobriety that I think law is about at a moment where it often just looks like it's being reduced to you know a joke uh, and a reality show. So we really, we see you, uh, those of us in the press, uh, the judicial branch, uh, in, in the political sphere. We see you, we honor you, we know this is just a really strange double life in the law that you are living right now. And I want to uh, urge you to know that treating it soberly and with gravitas and with dignity uh, is not a joke. It is a serious project. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the judicial branch, uh, because it's kind of easy to miss in the drip drip of the daily news. Yesterday, I think I posted in social media somewhere that putting the word breaking and then a story up 40 times a day is beginning to feel like we are the ones who are breaking, uh, not the news. And um, I understand that you're trying to you know, do all that and, and take all that in while outlining contracts. Uh, it's really a lot. And uh, so I think that one of the things that we can miss, because there isn't a really good press that covers uh, what happens every day and every week in the courts. But actually, you know, Trumpism has been markedly unsuccessful 
uh, in the courts. Uh, if you look at some of the really big ticket enterprises, things that they've tried to achieve that have been in some ways the most uh, demeaning and cruel, it's been the courts. Uh, that have held it back. And I think we forget that, partly because we focus uh, on what's going on that seems catastrophic, uh, but also sometimes when you have six, seven, eight lower court rulings in a week, it's just easy to miss uh, how much actual losing is happening with some of the really, uh, I think, dangerous projects. And so just for example, and I know you know all this, but it's the courts uh, who blocked the recent changes to the asylum laws. It's the courts who blocked building of the Keystone pipeline, the courts who have persistently allowed the emoluments cases to go forward, courts who have persistently uh, been out front on the DACA repeal uh, until recently uh, on the trans ban in the military, uh, on sanctuary cities. Time and time and time again, we have seen the federal courts acting as a real bulwark. Uh, supporting the notion that gravitas and sobriety and the rule of law are still the underpinning uh, of this country. And a Brookings study that came out in November showed that actually the, the Trump administration has lost all but one uh, attempt to, re, uh, to, to sort of undermine Obama-era regulations. Uh, put another way, the loss rate of this administration in the lower federal courts thus far in the aggregate after two years, they, they've got about a 5% win rate as compared to a 69% win rate of other administrations, right? Usually uh, the president's administration wins overwhelmingly in the courts. The loss rate has been a staggering, and we don't always clock it, as I said, because it's, you know, Trump loses again in a lower court doesn't feel like a big headline. Uh, just this week alone, for those of you who are not uh, clocking it at the rates I am, this administration lost a whole raft of important cases in federal courts. And I'm not talking simply about the utter joy of watching Roger Stone gagged uh, by a federal judge, but that take a minute, sit with that picture. Um, but also, you know, the notion uh, that Alex Acosta had violated the law in crafting uh, a deal with longtime notorious sexual predator uh, Jeffrey Epstein, uh, the judge overseeing the family separations case at the border uh, has pretty much all but said he's going to want full accounting of every child who was lost in that process, including those that are not swept into the class. Uh, a federal judge denied the Trump administration's attempt to revoke citizenship for a binational same-sex couple, all of that in the span of the last five days. Again, some of those may or may not make it to front page news, but those are huge, huge wins in the court. And I want to be very careful that I am not positing a binary here. This is not us against Trump. This is not judges against Trump. The phrase judges of the resistance is the biggest load of bunk you will hear. These are not judges of the resistance who are striking down lawless actions. <laughs> These are judges. They're just judges. And they are judges who are appointed by Reagan and by Bush and by Clinton and by Obama. And do not make the mistake of thinking that if you were a judge who strikes down something that was ill thought out or was not put in place using the proper procedures or that patently violates the Constitution or that is uh, the result of a pretext about what is going on, a judge who strikes that down is not part of the resistance. A person who does that is just being a judge. 
And again, I think it's really important when we talk throughout this weekend about the law and the rule of law to not allow it to get mired in conversations about our team versus their team. This isn't about teams. This is about law versus lawless. And I am here to tell you that law generally wins in the courts. And that is not a trivial matter. And so what I want to tell you that I think is important, the subtext to what I've just said, is that the people who do that, who get up and go to their chambers every day, and who write the opinions, and who without fanfare, and without Twitter, and without giving press conferences, persistently and consistently fight for the rule of law are our judges. And I think that we forget, because we believe so deeply in their magical power, that their magical power entirely is a function of them not being on Twitter, not giving press conferences, not saying suck it uh, when they uh, strike down some other pre presidential atrocity. And much as I would love to have a judge strike down this emergency declaration with the words suck it, it's not going to happen. And that is why the people who have to stand on the ramparts and defend our judicial branch, defend their honor and their integrity, is us. Because the truth of the matter is, the thing that makes the judicial branch work, the thing that makes Article III judges with lifetime tenure special and different, is that they truly believe that it would be beneath them to engage with this. It would be beneath them to engage in this. But that means that someone has to be out there every day fighting for them, because they're going to go along pretending, as we saw Judge Berman Jackson doing in the courtroom in DC with Roger Stone, pretending that all of this isn't absolutely bonkers. It is their job to get up, go into chambers, and put on their robe, and not be in an us versus them, this is crazy fight, that's on us. And so I think if you think about the long line, and you can start your timer at Judge Curiel, who Donald Trump eviscerated, eviscerated and shamed and said uh, wasn't a real judge and wasn't objective because he was a Mexican judge. Judge Curiel, by the way, who later uh, in a different case actually voted for this administration. If you start your timer there, and all the ways in which Donald Trump assailed him to the point that he needed protection, his kid needed protection to go to school, and he never tweeted back, and he never spoke back, and he never gave a press conference in which he said, suck it, Mr. President. And you can start it there. You can start with Judge Robart in the travel ban litigation, who again was uh, berated by name by this president and undermined. Again, did nothing, said nothing, put on his robe, went to work. The entire Ninth Circuit, time and time again, uh, judges in Hawaii who are called by Jeff Sessions and by Donald Trump not real judges because they're not really in America. Nobody fights back. And I think we want to have this collective magical thinking that says, that's fine, nobody needs to fight back. But what I am tasking you with today, as part of the many things you're going to be tasked with today, is be part of that fight, is speak up for those judges and for that judicial branch. Speak up for the Article Three judges who cannot always uh, fight for themselves. And I don't want to belabor this, but I will say briefly that it is in fact true that Donald Trump took office with, with 130 
vacancies, that he has broken every land speed record in terms of seating judges. He's now seated 29 appellate court judges, 53 district court judges, two Supreme Court justices, one-sixth of the current federal bench is a Trump judge. And again, without engaging in us versus them binaries, I think that we can and should have a serious conversation about the fact that 44 judges were moved through the Judiciary Committee in one day two weeks ago, some of whom had already been voted down, some of whom will not pledge that they believe that Brown versus Board is good and binding president, some of whom have never argued a case, uh, and many of whom have written shocking things about LGBTQ teens, about women, about abortion, uh, and about uh, minorities. And the fact that they are just pushed through and that doesn't cross the transom as something we need to talk about is, I think, really catastrophically dangerous. And so I'm urging you to be in that conversation, even though I know the feeling is there's nothing I can do. And it's probably worth, again, you know this, but I'll say it anyway, of those judges that have been pushed through, close to 90% are white men. Uh, this is not a judicial branch that looks anything like even this room. And I think that's another conversation we have to figure out how to have. So this is what I'm asking you to do. And I know it's boring. I'm asking you to do for the judicial branch what the judicial branch cannot do for itself. And I know you don't believe me when I say this, but law students are natural born, hydroponically underground raised op-ed writers. You don't know this about yourselves, and I don't know, maybe you think op-eds are like for your grandparents, but op-eds in papers make a difference. Talking to your senators makes a difference. Writing time and time again, long after it's boring, that the federal judiciary is the keeper of something that is sober and sacred and precious and rare in this country, it matters and we don't do it. And I am asking you to step into the conversation and Lorax with me on this issue because on almost every other issue, someone has the capacity to tweet back. On this issue, nobody but us has the capacity to teach back, uh, to tweet back. And the last thing I'm going to task you with, and this sounds like a, huh? but it's really very serious, and it goes back to my claim that this is not a binary fight. This is not us versus them. This is not just border separations or DACA or the trans ban. This is the life in the law that you are choosing. It is not us versus them. It is about a life of dignity, a life of sobriety, not that kind of sobriety, a life of sober reflection. More than anything, I'm asking you to be in a life of truth where words matter, not just in the ways that Tracy describes, which is so important. Use your words to inspire. Use your words to lift up. Use your words to include. I'm asking you to do all that, but I'm also asking you to fight for truth in the law for the proposition that this entire profession is predicated on the idea that if both sides tell the truth, we can resolve things. If one side is not telling the truth, we cannot. And so be a voice for truth. Be a voice for language. Be a voice for those who do not have voices. And that might be the most sacred task you will have in the law, in your lives in the law. 
but live your life, please, within the confines, but also the amazing privilege of the legal profession and live it, I think, in dignity and live it in seriousness and in honor and truth. And I do believe, I've said this time and time again, I think I said it last year at ACS, that if young lawyers, the generation that's coming up, I'm now calling you the Zamboni generation, you're gonna like clean the ice, <laughs> just get everything that we have screwed up. But I think that you will come up if you live within those lanes of the law and take it seriously and see it with the honor and dignity that it has. I truly believe you will turn back the tide of what is frightening and destabilizing about this moment, I truly believe you'll bring us to a better place. Thank you very much. I am um, super happy to take questions for 10 minutes if folks have questions, um, and it can be anything you want to talk about or if you just want to gossip, I'm happy to do that. Anybody? Yeah. Hey, um, I'm John Gould, I'm a 3 out pen. Uh, I'm curious, so you want us to defend Article Three judges. Uh, with obviously, a lot of these judges now have been appointed by the Trump administration, and so if they make rulings that we don't agree with, how much should we really defend them? And secondly, you know, the Supreme Court is really conservative, could be more conservative soon. Uh, you know, I think some of that's unfair. I think judicial legitimacy comes from electing politicians who appoint judges. So between Bush v. Gore and now you know, this election where maybe there was collusion with Russia, maybe there wasn't, at what point do we say we need to repack the court, we need to rebalance the court? Like how far does this go before we have to make real changes to our judiciary? It's a great question. And I think it's a question that, um, I guess I can speak for me and Garrett Epps, but not all legal journalists. I think it's one that we are really reckoning with seriously in this moment that uh, we never talked seriously about. Even, I think, throughout the entire Mer Merrick Garland conversation, I don't think we were having a conversation about court packing until now. Um, there's a couple of groups now that are launching initiatives that are just expressly uh, uh, Aaron Belkin, uh, uh, Sean uh, McElwee, like a bunch of people who are not even court professionals who are saying the only thing that we're going to be able to do is in 2020 uh, uh, pack the courts. And I think that my feelings about it are exactly as sort of on the laser edge that you've just posited. Uh, my feelings about it continue to be that the one really bad idea we've seen around the court was court packing, right? It almost brings down FDR because it seems so anathema to how we think about the courts. And at the same time, as you've said, uh, absent a very serious court packing uh, conversation, uh, this could be something that, you know, a world that in 2020, when a quarter or a third of the judiciary uh, are Trump judges, uh, that we can't not have the conversation. And I think that the tension that you've identified is part of the problem of lawyers generally being small c conservative people. Uh, we really believe in these norms. Uh, we believe, and you know, I, I wish I could tell you how many conversations I've had with very, very smart, 
uh, liberal thinkers who are saying, we need to reinstate blue slips, we need to bring back uh, the filibuster as soon as we take power. Let's go back to all of these Senate conventions uh, that disabled us in the first instance. And I think that what you're talking about yourself, what I'm describing in myself, is a deep resistance, right? Because we like our norms and conventions, and even if they're not uh, they don't have the full force of law. This is how the Senate has worked, and at its best, this is how the Senate must work. So I think that my sense is that there are more people having the kinds of conversations you're talking about. Uh, there are more people saying, okay, there's nothing left. We can't keep bringing like the butter knife to the gunfight and saying like, let's reinstate all of these norms uh, that have harmed us in the past. And there probably aren't enough people talking about it as seriously as you want to be. Because I think, you know, watching even legal academics uh, approached, can you now get on board with a court packing conversation? No. So I think that this is this deep internal um, almost a civil war that has more to do with our personal predilections and preferences as lawyers, which is not to do radical things, uh, as much as it is a sort of a, a political normative description of how to fix it. And I think maybe the last thing I would say um, is that I, I, I deeply believe that progressives in this one sense have harmed themselves because I think that this sort of fealty to norms and conventions is kind of unilateral. And so um, I think that the desire to be honorable, uh, to go back to a system in which both sides of the Senate can talk and soberly choose good judges is not, there's no parity there. And I think that's part of the problem. I think at the end of the day, if I were going to posit sort of a theoretical framework for what you've dis discussed, it's like Michelle Obama, when they go low, you go high. Eric Holder, a year and a half later, when they go low, like kick them in the knees. And I really do think like that's, that's the existential question that progressive lawyers are, are grappling with right now. And I think that there, you're right to say there's no other way out. Just being nice uh, and hoping for the best doesn't seem to be working. I can just tell you descriptively that that is still not a deeply popular, certainly not in the academy and certainly not in the political world that I am covering uh, notion yet. Well, yes. <laughs> But again, you're hydroponically hatched in an underground lab to write that op-ed. So I think you, you all have to also be the voice of that, too. I was going to get chosen. Um, hi. Hi, I'm Mohammed, uh, University of Buffalo. I'm a 2L. Uh, you wrote this morning on, in, in your article about Robert Mueller, who's going to ghost us after he drops the report. Um, that we have a, one of your particular points was that we have a collective action problem, and I think I agree with that because how do we get, so my question is how do we get people to care about the courts because we tried organizing on, on this in 2016 by saying that the Supreme Court is up for stakes, you know, two seats are going to open up and we really need to care about it, and people didn't even care about the Supreme Court, so how do we get, how do we get people to organize around the remaining federal bench because if they don't even care about the Supreme Court, how do we get them to care about district courts and um, circuit courts? How do, we, how do we address our collective action problem for that? Um, so first of all, um, 
Thank you for reading my column when you should have been at the ACS convention. Um, it's, it's, again, I think it is the question, and um, you know the ACS folks in the room will tell you that I spent the entire year around Merrick Garland lighting myself on fire saying, you know, we have three sitting justices who are 80 or almost 80. We have a vacancy that is not being filled for the first time in history. And progressives are out there fighting, you know, internecine wars about which nominee they like better. There is a huge, I would say, four decade long differential between how progressives vote about the court. And even in 2016, when you asked them what your top issues were, the court was like nine. And we know, because we know from the exit polling, that when people in 2016 went and pulled the lever for Donald Trump, many of them holding their nose at the time, by a two to one margin, people who cared about the court voted for Trump. So there is a massive, differential in uh, you know, whether it's a collective action problem or a messaging problem. I simply think there's a huge differential in enthusiasm about the court. And I think that partly that's a function of most progressives, I would say up until uh, Merrick Garland and then um, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh genuinely believed that we were still in the Warren court. I think there was just some feeling that, you know, we kicked ass in the 60s and 70s, and it's still that. Uh, and even in the face of, you know, slow drip, drip erosion on voting rights, drip, drip erosion on affirmative action, on everything that progressives claim to value, and this is long before, right, um, Merrick Garland, I think there was just a sense that this was a world in which the court uh, had protected progressive interests. And I think that maybe that's changed now. But I think, and I guess this would be my last point, I think that there is a deep, and I, don't, I can't diagnose it, but I think there is a deep problem on the left of not drawing a straight line between outcomes and the court. And so we can sit through the Kavanaugh hearings and be shocked and horrified, and it may not, in fact, animate uh, people going out in 2020 and voting about the composition of the court. Uh, I think we get very, very excited around whole women's health and don't say, let's draw a straight line between what happened in whole women's health and a 5-4 Supreme Court uh, that is really excited uh, to overturn Roe. And so I think it is just partly uh, a sort of a, 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 a diffusion of interests and, and uh, organization. And I think it's deeply, and I mean this, uh, erroneous messaging around the court that's happened on the left. I think that having sat through six confirmation hearings, watching, oops, even members of the Senate Judiciary Committee try to describe what it is that they think that a progressive jurist does is one of the most eye-crossing experiences of your life. Because if you listen to Ted Cruz, and if you listen to Ben Sass, they can say in one sentence what it is that a conservative, originalist, balls and strikes caller does. And then you get to the, to the Judiciary Committee, by the way, smartest people in the room, you know, it's not that they're dumb. And they start talking about what it is that liberal judges should do. And immediately they're in this weird land of like cardiologic, you know, they have to have good hearts and they have to, you know, like take in kittens from the shelter. Like, I don't know what they're talking about, but it's not law. 
And so I think part of it is, and I know ACS works so hard on this, but crafting a corollary message about what it is that progressive jurisprudence is and what it means and why it matters that there are, there are judges who either do that thing that we can't quite name or don't, I think that's the heart of the problem that you're describing. We have to figure out answers for that and language for that. Can I take one more? I know we're, one more, oops, yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Eli Jones. I'm a first year here at uh, the University of Virginia. Uh, my question is, you said not to make it a partisan issue or make it us versus them, but you also said to be a voice for truth. The current administration clearly has big issues with the truth in general. Um, and in an era where it sort of seems truth and like facts that are reported by journalists seem to be a partisan divide, uh, what are some strategies we can employ to be a voice for truth without appearing too overly partisan? Yeah, it's really, I mean, again, I, I know I've now answered three questions by saying this is the existential question of our time, so I probably have like run out my, my quota of saying it, but I think for me that really is the thing, is that how do you not engage in a partisan war when one side is uh, inventing things all the time? And I think it is, I mean, as a journalistic problem, you probably have seen, you know, it took until after the election, the 2016 election, for the New York Times to be able to say lying, right? I mean, up until then, they were like, who knows, you know, could be this, could be that, Trump may or may not be truthful. It took until after the election to actually sort of call that out. We now live in a world that I'm not sure how well it functions, where we have this sort of fact-checking industrial complex, right? So that after every speech, we have 5,000 fact-checkers who say, like, there were 72 lies in the Rose Garden speech. And I'm not sure that moves the needle either. Uh, I'm not sure it moves the needle. Uh, you know, and then we have more and more had a conversation in the press about maybe we don't show up to these, you know, uh, uh, Rose Garden events. Maybe we don't cover it as though uh, it's a regular thing. Maybe we don't put uh, Stephen Miller on the Sunday shows if he's not truthful. Uh, and I think that further creates exactly the polarization, right, that you decry, which is you can't ignore, uh, especially when it's the president and the commander in chief of the army, you can't not cover what he's saying. I think to the extent that I am developing a model, I'm glad, glad Tracy, mentioned uh, Rachel Maddow, um, who for years and years, I did the show like literally from, from uh, here in Charlottesville with like, you know, one little like boom mic and suddenly I'm in the studio with her and it's, it's like I keep touching her face because she's really, she's like, stop touching my face, Daya. Um, but um, one thing that I think she has modeled that I think is at least interesting is that for the last year, she just doesn't cover Trump qua Trump. She covers the thing that is going on, but if you go back and look, she doesn't cover the tweets, she doesn't cover anything that he does that is one of these kind of squirrel, you know, that she wants, that, that he wants to distract, she no longer engages with. And I think, and I've thought about this a ton, and I suspect any journalist with a conscience who's trying to work through how do we cover this thing without engaging in this thing, um, and without saying, you're a liar, which is, you know, doesn't seem uh, like it works all that well, is I think to sort of do the work of disaggregating what is just theater and spectacle and distraction from what is in fact cruel 
policy that we can talk about. And maybe this is the, the best way to circle back to where I started, which is if you look at what the courts are doing, overwhelmingly what they're doing is engaging at that level. They are not engaging, I mean, with some exceptions in the travel ban litigation, but they're not engaging in sort of suck it, Mr. President uh, jurisprudence. They're engaging in sober conversations about policy that have very little to do with the drama. And I think maybe that's why I think this marriage of legal thinking and journalistic thinking and sort of blocking out the part of it that is maybe somewhat relevant but not urgent and then engaging with the thing that is materially affecting millions of people who don't have voices. That's the voice of lawyers. That's the voice of the best journalism. Thank you very much. Enjoy your conference. <laughs>